All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, based on the law of non-contradiction, that means I am not Jamal Williams. And so, which um, might invoke weeping and gnashing of teeth. My request is that you don't tell me, because I'm also rather insecure and rather nervous personality in general, okay? So, please do not tell me you're disappointed. But if you are, I understand. <laughs> Uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, Pastor Jamal will not be able to be here. So, as I said in the first service, if you were coming to a baseball game looking for the starting ace, this is not the place. Okay, so you got you got the reliever instead. So, <laughs> and uh, and uh, so anyway, things are a little mixed up around here. Um, not only am I here, and I'm not. Uh, I mean, I'm not supposed to be. I mean, I'm not really supposed to be anywhere else, to be honest. But, um, <laughs> but also the bathrooms are not over here, as you probably know. So they are over in the kids' wing. You have to go down. I started to say down into the pit, but that's what I say. That's what I say. Like, anyway, I shouldn't say that. Because that's the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth because, like, kids are crying and stuff. I really shouldn't have done that. I apologize, Kristen Gillis, because I, like... I really sold that wrong. Anyway, you go to the kids' wing and just go downstairs, and there's some bathrooms in there. Was that, was that okay, Lachlan? He's it like, perfect. I mean, now. <laughs> I only messed it up. Um, so anyway, as you can tell, I get a little nervous about a variety of things. Announcements make me nervous. Preaching makes me nervous. The thing that makes me 
The most nervous um, is actually fun. Um, a buddy of mine was giving me a hard time for a good reason, and he said, you can always tell when there's fun around because Travis's neck twists and his body stiffens up. He does, I don't know what to do with fun, which you laugh. I'm not joking. I'm being 100% serious. I'm getting a little nervous because people are enjoying themselves. So, um, But what happens is, is because of that nature of me, um, I, I get nervous around fun, is uh, we have to have arguments in our home disagreements. We're Christians. You don't argue with your spouse, right? When you're a Christian, especially when you're a pastor. But we have arguments in our home where my wife will try to convince me to do fun things, and I, I engage in the argument. And so the argument was, we're going to take a family vacation. I make an argument on what is the point. We're a family here. We're going to be a family over there. What's the, I got some people clapping. You feel the same way. Thanks be to God. Did, my wife's here. Did you hear that, honey? I'm not going to get it. She'll get the claps now. <laughs> oh, that wasn't fair. Um, and so it's like, you know, I don't think we need to do that. And then, you know, whatever, we go back and forth. And then, so the argument came. The argument arose two or three years ago where we were going to take not only a family vacation, but we're going to go to the ocean. We're going to go to the beach. I grew up in Indiana. In Indiana, there are beaches, okay? Sometimes somebody's grandpa's got a pond and he puts sand at the edge of the pond, right? And you sit there with your feet in the water in the pond. I don't see the need to travel 10, 12 hours to go to a place where there's sand and water, okay? Or, you know, you go to a lake, for that matter, you could come to Sojourn New Albany, like today the air conditioning's working, but normally it's not, right? And so we could throw a kiddie pool and some sand out there, right? Come to church. That hurt the staff. I shouldn't have done that. I'm, kill I'm digging a hole, Jonah. This was a bad idea. That'll learn him to ever have me preach again. And so... I get very nervous. So anyway, well, what happens is here's how you win the argument. Here's how you win any argument, okay? An argument in my home. Here's how you win an argument with your spouse. Here's how you win a political argument, okay? You have to appeal to what we call the ultimate argument. Generally, it's just three or four words. All you have to do is say, what about the children, okay? It's <laughs> all you got to do. We need right? We need to take care of the environment. Why? What about the children, right? And it ends it. Oh gosh, you're right. And so we need to do whatever. We need to fix the schools. Why? Well, the children and so on and so on. And so we have these kind of arguments. I, my conscience will allow me to eat baked chicken, okay? And so if my <laughs> wife says that there's baked chicken for dinner, I'm like, no, it's smoked beef. And we go back and forth. And then she says, well, the children. And I'm like, gosh, it's baked chicken. Do you got any codeine that I can drink beforehand to help me get through? <laughs> kidding, I did. Just kidding. I went too far. Um, and so, and so, anytime. So, what happened was, long story short, a very long story at this point, short, is that um, she said, What about the children? And so I was like, I guess we're going to the beach. And so we go to the beach to have fun. And, uh, and it's just a hard thing for me to do. And we go to like the southern part of North Carolina and we eventually get to our destination and we uh, have a place where as close to the ocean as we can be. And whenever you come up to the ocean, 
Um, even somebody who is as um, curmudgeon as me, you look at it and it is overwhelmingly beautiful. Um, it is overwhelmingly beautiful. It is overwhelmingly vast. Um, and you can just stand kind of at the edge of it and just feel so insignificant because the reality is, is like I'm not even seeing a fraction uh, of the Atlantic o Ocean, which is where we're at. And, you know, the Atlantic Ocean is not even the largest ocean um, in the world. And um, the, the reality is, is going to the ocean, you come to see, in some ways, you, you come to see, one, all the beauty and the joy that comes from from such a thing. I mean, people can, people can fish and enjoy God's creation. People can get in the water. They can, you know, get on the boats. They can get on a boogie board or they can surf or they can do whatever. And you can, you can be in the ocean and you can look at it and you can enjoy it and you can rejoice at the ocean because it is unbelievable and it is beautiful. And at the same time, it's the ocean. Like, and I already said, I'm a rather nervous individual as it is, but like we're walking up to it and you have these warning signs on like, you know, enter into the water at your own risk. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, you know, starting to pass out because why? Well, the reality is, is it's the ocean. Like, and you know, you have all these signs and these warnings about riptides and so on and so on, because the reality is, is that the ocean could swallow you up and you'd never even, no one would ever even notice. And so when we were there, there was this kind of ongoing tension. There's generally ongoing tensions with me, but there was this ongoing tension and this reality of like, you know what, this is good and then it's beautiful. And at the same time, it's to be handled with care. And I think the same is true out of our Christian life. I think the same is true about the way we relate to God, that we approach God as as our loving Father who invites us and calls us to rejoice in Him. And at the same time, He's God. My hope and my desire as we enter into the book of Jonah, my hope is, and desire is that, that one will come, to, will come to embrace the honesty of this book and that we will in turn become a more honest people, that we will be a people who are honest with God about where we are at, at least at this moment in time. And you're going to see that in this book, that, that Jonah is a very honest individual. He doesn't hide a lot. And that's, that's my hope and my longing for us as a church, that we'll be a church that is able to be honest with God. And at the same time, we will, we will receive his mercy. And at the same time, we will honor him and respect him because at the end of the day, he is God. And there's a tension of the rejoicing and the trembling that I've felt in my life and I see here in this passage and I invite us today. We need that. We have a church to where I think our natural culture is one where we, we hear invitation and we hear the invitations of receive God's mercy and receive God's grace. And many people have been attracted to our church because there is this culture and this environment of grace and it is good and is wonderful. But what happens at times is people come from backgrounds to where God's um, majesty and transcendence and exaltation is the focus. And so here we say, you can be where you are and it's okay. And then in other places, they say, you can't be where you are. You need to get it right now. And the reality is, is that both those messages are correct. And to neglect one or the other 
is to at the least have an imbalanced Christian life and to live a Christian life that is out of harmony and out of the step with the revelation of who God is according to the Scriptures. We might be able to say, I've been in churches where they could say, I can't imagine that God would be okay with you in the midst of all your sin. And I've been in other churches, and I've been here to where we might say, I can't imagine um, that you, you would be any different, and God is okay with where you are. And I can't imagine God doing anything to make you uncomfortable. And the reality is, is if you can imagine God, He is not God. In the scriptures, there is a God that we never imagined. If you can imagine God, he will disappoint you and he can't save you. But the good news is, is the Bible reveals a God that you did not imagine and he can save you. And that is the message of the book of Jonah. We see here, chapter 1 begins with God giving Jonah a very simple command. He tells him to go to Nineveh and Jonah responds by saying, no, through his actions, and God bringing a storm and chasing Jonah. Now it's with all these things in mind that it is my prayer that today you hear the Spirit saying to you one thing, and that is God is good, but he's not safe. God is good, but he's not safe. You might say to me, now how do we respond to God if God is good, but he is not safe? Well, first, I believe we respond to God with quick obedience. First, we respond to God with quick obedience. Second, we respond to God through living out our confessions. Through living out our confessions. And then third, we respond to this good but unsafe God by trusting Him to finish our story. By trusting Him to finish our story. First, we respond to God with quick obedience. So the book of Jonah is a prophet. A prophet is just simply a person who goes and speaks to other people for God. Um, nothing complex about it. God gives a man a message, and the man takes that message to other people and says, this is what God says. That's essentially what a prophet is. And the book starts out like most of the prophet's books, to where it looks like verses 1 specifically, but also verse 2. Verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So it starts out with Jonah saying, uh, with God speaking to Jonah and giving him a simple command, go to Nineveh. Now, wherever Jonah is at, Nineveh is east of him. Nineveh is in modern-day Iraq, and God tells him, I want you to go, and I want you to take a message, and that is, I know what you've done. I know the sins that you've committed. Here, the word is a heavier word. I know the wickedness that you've committed. Nineveh belongs to what's called the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was the most powerful empire in the ancient world at the time. And they were a, they were a, they were a powerful people, but they were brutal. They would come into countries and level them and flatten them. They would come into countries and they would, they would kill men, women, and children. And anybody who was left alive, they would exile from their place to another place so that you never heard from them ever again. I mean, they were a brutal people, and on top of that, they would take the decapitated bodies of their victims and they'd pile them outside the cities 
so that everybody knew what you were getting into if you messed with the Assyrians. And so God says to Jonah, tell these people, I know what they've done. It's a simple command. He tells him to go east and take a message. And then Jonah responds. Look with me in verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So Jonah goes and he gets a ticket and he's going to go for he's going to go to a place called Tarshish. Now where's that out? Tarshish is is west. Okay, the Bible, when it speaks about the city of Tarshish, we, we believe it's in modern day Spain. That's what seems to be the most evidence from biblical scholars. But essentially, it's a faraway place and it's west. It's as far west as, as you would have got in those days. Columbus hadn't sailed the ocean blue yet, so they didn't know about America. And so if you wanted to get away, you went to Tarshish and that's where he went. So you can imagine he could go east and he could speak a message to these um, hateful and brutal and violent people, but he's not going to do that, right? He's not going to do that because what he's trying to do is he's trying to get away from those people. Jonah, um, it, Jonah the, the saying goes, Jonah's a nationalist. Um, he's a racist. He's a bigot. He's not interested in anybody but his own people, and so that's why he takes off the other direction. Now, all those things may be one true and two implications of the passage. And it's right that Jonah does have a problem here. But I find no evidence in the Scriptures no direct evidence in the scriptures that, that that's what the issue is. Jonah has a problem, not necessarily with people. He's got a problem with an individual. It's God. Did you see that? Did you see that twice in one verse? It says he was fleeing the Lord. He was trying to get away from God. Jonah's got a big problem. And his big problem is God. In fact, later, whenever we'll see it in, in chapter 1, verse 10, in fact, he gets on the boat and he tells other people, I'm on this boat because I'm trying to get away from God. He doesn't say he's trying to get away from Nineveh. And so the Lord responds. In verse 4, it says, And then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Jonah is going to get away from God, and he's going to get a boat, and he's going to get on the water, and he's going to go on the sea, and he's going to get away from God. And so how does God respond? I mean, God, here's the perplexing thing to me, is that God could very easily have sent someone else to Nineveh. Like, he's God. Like, he could have went along to one of Jonah's contemporaries, I don't know, Amos or Isaiah or somebody, and said, hey, if you don't have anything else to do, go to Nineveh. By the way, I'm God. Just to throw that in there. But, but that's not what he does. The NIV doesn't translate it here, but it says that he hurls. And God hurls. It's as if he's throwing things in the sea that if Jonah's going to get on a ship to try to get away from God, God will sink the ship. 
Jonah's not going to ignore God. The reality is, is that God allowed Jonah for a period of time to stay in his rebellion, and then eventually God said, that's enough. And so God comes to pursue his rebellious son through the storm. Here's a reality that the scriptures teach us, Christian, is that God is a refuge for the person who will run to him. But for the Christian who wants to run away from God, he is a wrecking crew. We can hear the invitations of Scripture, and God's character is such. This is what the Scriptures teach us, that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. There's something about the character of God that it says in Isaiah 30, verse 18, that God delights. He waits to be merciful to us, and yet at the same time, it also says that he is slow to anger. Not that he is devoid of anger. Not that he has no anger. Not that that his anger is never incited. It just means that you and I, where we're at when we're in the midst of our sin when we do wrong it's not as if God's going to fly off the handle that's not his character but at the same time he's slow to anger and so for a period of time God allowed Jonah to refuse and ignore his command and he got from where he was when he first heard it all the way into the sea and then God said that's enough I will not be ignored anymore Now, my question for you is, how long do you have to ignore God? How long do you have to ignore God? How long before God will will come after you? It seems to me in Scripture that at times, God speaks to us in whispers, and then at other times, he he brings out tidal waves. He's good but he's not safe. How long do you have to ignore God? Is there some sort of contractual relationship? You know, is that that what it is? It's like if I read my Bible and I go to church and I do the good things, therefore God will give me a free pass on Monday and Tuesday, okay? I, I put in my time on Sunday. I get a free pass on Monday and Tuesday. I get my life back together on Saturday or something like that. Is that the way that it works? The reality is, is if we, if we will not hear God, he will get our attention somehow. God will afflict us in an effort to get our affection. That's what the scriptures teach. So here's what I say. Listen, hear God, respond quickly. God is willing and able to receive you as you are where you are, but he won't be ignored. For some of us, we can apply this in that maybe, maybe we say, you know what, where I'm at right here, right now, I don't have it in me. I mean, there's been times where I've said that to God to say, I know what I'm supposed to do. I identify with Jonah is that Jonah knew what he was supposed to do. Go preach. It's simple. It wasn't complex. And there's times where in the scriptures, I might see that I know what I am to do and, I, and I'm not there. And so let us, let us make this our prayer. Let's just say, God, please help us. Like, give me the want to obey you. Give me the want to. The reality is there's an honesty in this passage. Like, why on earth would God record such a thing? Now, there's an honesty to God. And he's calling us to respond to him quickly because he's good. He's not safe. Second, 
We're to live according to our confessions. We're to live our lives according to our confessions. So as the scene continues, the storm intensifies. Look here with me in verses 4 and 5. Then the Lord sent the wind on the sea, and a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And all the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below the deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. So imagine the scene with me. The, the scene is, is that they are on a boat. There's all kinds of, there's a storm that's raging, whatever. There's rain, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's waves going everywhere. People are freaking out, right? I mean, like obviously, right? They're throwing stuff off the side. People are crying and praying and everything else. And then there's Jonah. Who's sleeping? You see the irony in all of this? Like everybody else is freaking out and it's not affecting him. And so what happens is you look in verse 6, the captain finds him and he's sleeping. And this is the new Travis translation. He's like, come on, man, get up. Like, wake up, pray or something. He says to him, like, call on your God or something. The rest of us are praying. Jonah's not affected by it. It's fascinating to me, the guy, the guy gives him a command and Jonah's still not, he's still not obeying. He's still not doing anything. And then they, they cast lots. This was an ancient way of finding out the will of God. And so they cast lots. And then the word says, and the lot fell on Jonah. And so they said, okay, because they want to know like what's going on and whose fault is this? And it comes down to Jonah and they're like, tell us who you are. Tell us what you do. Tell us where you come from. You better come clean because we're all going to die here because of you. And Jonah says this in verse 9. I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Uh, I'm, I'm a Hebrew and I worship God. Well, you got a strange way of showing it, Jonah, to be frankly honest. Like, some of your versions will say, I, <laughs> I am a Hebrew and I fear God. Really, do you? The only people who fear God in this passage are, are the sailors. It's not Jonah, okay? So it's like, this is who I am. I'm Jonah and I worship God. Well, you got a strange way of showing it, Jonah, because you don't even pray. And then for that matter, you're taken off. And then for that matter, did you see verse 10? In, in verse 10, it says, when Jonah got on the boat, he told everybody, I'm trying to get away from God. Like, could you imagine that scene? You know what I mean? Jonah getting on the boat. Hey, I'm Travis. I'm here to take your ticket. How's it going? What's your name? Jonah. Okay, Jonah, where are you going to? Tarshish? Oh, okay, great. Going west, huh? You got family out there? No, nope, trying to get away from God. Oh, okay, well, a shrimp cocktail over there. See you, buddy. And then later it's like, wait, where's that Jonah guy? What are you doing to us? I worship God. No, you don't. No, you don't. You say you do. And so then they say, now what? And Jonah has a confession. I, I love this and at the same time, it bothers me. The honesty, I love it, and it bothers me. And it bothers me for this reason. Like, I would say to you about myself, like, I try to live a pretty honest and transparent life. I don't have, I mean, I don't, 
I don't, I mean, I'm honest enough to say, like, I don't like fun. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I don't have a lot to hide. Like, and so therefore, like, you could, if you wanted to look at my phone call log or whatever to see who I'm talking to, go ahead. It ain't anybody fun. You know what I mean? Like, you want to see who my text messages are from? It's not anybody fun. Well, sorry, pastor. This is like, the pastors text me all the time. What am I saying? Anyway, um, you know what I mean? Like, I don't have anything to hide. You can look at my visit history on my computer. And, you know, I don't have anything to hide. But I would be nervous if you looked at my, at my spending receipts. Because I would tell you, here's my confession. I would tell you, I, like, I value hard work. I value honesty. I value sacrificing for others. I value my family and so on and so on. But the reality is, is if you look at my spending, a lot of my spending would indicate other things. Like, I'm not going to spend, you know, 40 bucks to go on vacation, but I'll, I'll spend $4 on a candy bar, you know, 10 days in a row or something like that, you know, because I, I like my own immediate pleasure. You know what I mean? Like, you see a lot of trips to convenience stores, fast food restaurants, and whatever would indicate what I actually value. Now, is the takeaway from the message, thou shall not go to Circle K? Well, no, but well, what am I trying to get at? Well, what do those things indicate? Well, they indicate something that I value and that I value quick, immediate gratification. Well, I never go into those places to be like, how can I bless my family? I go in those places to say, what do I want? So I have a confession but there's something about my life that doesn't match up to that confession. Something that is beautiful about our church, and it's something that I love, is that we have a culture of confession. We have a culture to where we, we place a value on at least saying the right things. And this is a church where you can come as you are, where you are right now. And I think that's good and that's beautiful. But confession is similar to the foundation of your home. Okay? You've got to have a good foundation. You've got to be able to confess what you believe and where you're at. That's a good foundation. But the reality is, is nobody lives on a mere slab of concrete in the woods. You've got to have more than that. You've got to have, you've got to have walls and you've got to have roof and you've got to have something that, that goes along with the foundation. And the thing that I long for out of myself, and it's the journey that I'm asking the church to go on with me, is that we would be a church that not only confesses, but we'd have a changed life. That, we, that our confessions would, would match our lives. Here, Jonah is saying, I'm a person who worships God, and yet he's got a funny way of showing that. Now, that's the human condition, but I don't know about you. I know for myself, is I want different. And so will you join me in saying to God, God, we want to be different. For some of you, you can apply this in that confession would be different. For some people, it's not easy to confess their faults. It's not easy to confess their faults to God as if he doesn't know. And then for others, you need to apply it in confessing your faults one to another. It says in James, you confess your faults one to another and pray for each other that you may be healed. And so for some of you, the next step is to make that a part of your home. It may be with you and your spouse. It may be with you and your children. It may be with you and your friends. It might be within your community group. So for some of you, the, the next step is confession itself. But for others, it's a step beyond that. Mere confession is not good enough. Do you want more? And will you call out to God for it? The other thing that I see here in this passage is, is 
that my actions, my sins affect other people. We have to abandon the lie that like what I do is just, is just my problem. That's not, that's not true. That's just an American lie of individualism. Like what I do affects other people. What Jonah did affected other people. And we need to abandon that lie. Oh, what I want for us is that we would, we would, would live according to our confessions. And then third, let us trust God with the rest of our story. You have that what happens is, is that things get worse. Jonah says, look, just throw me off the side. If you throw me off the side, this will all stop and you'll be fine. And he just wants to be, he, he's just saying this is how you can end it. Now, Again, notice that, that Jonah is not calling out to God. He's saying to these guys, throw me into the sea. In the midst of all its raging, all its power, everything, he's saying, just throw me into the sea. Like, was the guy in just so much despair that he just was giving up? Was he, was he in despair with where he was at? Like, what's going on with this guy? But what he says is he says, look, throw me over the side. They say, we don't want to do that. And then things get worse and they intensify and they feel like they don't have anything else to do. They cry out to God and they throw Jonah overboard. Look here with me at what it says in verse 15 and 16. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Notice that they feared the Lord and they worshipped him. They, they sacrificed and they said prayers. And everything got quiet. It looks pretty bleak, to be honest. I mean, Jonah's not in a good spot. And and yet, it's dark, it's bleak. He's being cast off in the sea, left for dead. And God responds in verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is where Jonah was at. He responds, and God, God meets Jonah where he's at. God is pursuing his rebellious child in the midst of something that is deep, dark, and full of despair. And he meets him by having him swallow up being swallowed up by a fish. Everything else in this book up to this point in time, everything else but Jonah is obedient to God. The winds are obedient to God. The seas are obedient to God. These sailors are obedient to God. Everyone else is obedient to God but Jonah. And it doesn't look very good. And now he's trapped for three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. And it doesn't look... And yet, at the same time, it looks exactly like the way God works. 
It looks exactly like the way God works. That things are in deep, dark despair, and yet God intervenes. Like, for you, Christian, you might be in the midst of despair. Maybe it's from suffering. Maybe it's from disease. Maybe it's from um, discouragement. Maybe it's from your own sin. Maybe it's from the sin of somebody else that you love. And the reality is, is that when things are bleak and dark, God intervenes. After a period of time, here, for three days into three nights. That's true in the life of Jonah, and it's true in your life. God is concerned about pursuing his rebellious children. And you know what? That was true in the life of Jesus Christ. You see, in the life of Jesus Christ, things were dark and they were bleak and there was all kinds of despair. Jesus Christ was murdered and he was left on a cross to die. And then after three days, God intervened. God showed up. Why? To rescue you, his rebellious child. And so you can say with the songwriter, in the grave his body lay, Jesus my Savior, waiting for the coming day, Jesus my Lord. But then what? Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. And now he offers us life. We see that in the word and we see it in the Lord's Supper. You see, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and says, this is my body broken for you. This is my body broken for you. God is good, but he's not safe. And he'd give his son for you, Christian. In the same way, he took a cup of wine and after giving thanks, he says, this, is, this cup is the blood of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Take, drink of this, do this in remembrance of me. For every time you eat from this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. If you're a Christian, I invite you to come forward. Our tradition here is to tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice or the wine, whatever your conscience permits. The wine will be marked by a piece of twine. And if you're a Christian, I invite you to come forward and partake of it. But if you're not a Christian, I ask for you to, to respect our traditions and not take it. But I, I pray that you've heard God speaking to you and that you would take Jesus by faith. He'll be your God and he'll receive you as you are because Jesus is a God who comes to rescue his rebellious children. And if you're not a Christian, please take him by faith. Let's pray together.